0: hello there once again you are listening to the inspired Minds podcast my name is Jeff Watson I am indeed and ever shall be your gracious and grateful host how y'all doing today tonight this evening 4 am I got a thing that I say now I got a I got a pitch I got an intro I uh, hope everyone's doing just fine I am wonderful and why because I fucking did it I graduated from school what therapist, or at least I'm. I'm on my way now. Uh, I did it. I don't know if anybody is even listening to these things, but I've been documenting this this process a bit, and it's great. And I get to be part of people's lives and their pain, and their joy. And I was like the third person to hear about someone's pregnancy. Like, how amazing is that? I'm just some guy. Um, and to be would just hope to, to witness the the rebirth of people and. Um, it's, oh God, it's just an amazing thing. It's like this drug that I've never known existed and now I'm going to chase it like a, like a heroin addict. <laughs> it's amazing. So, um, and a lot of it has to do with this podcast actually, because I've been talking to some pretty amazing human beings, um, all kinds of people with different walks of life on this thing. I've been doing it for about a year with my dear friend, Mr. Michael Lee Simpson, a wonderful human being who was a screenwriter in his own right and a Great guy, writing for all kinds of stuff these days. So, um, yeah, that's my <laughs> that's what I got today. I uh, and so as a way of introing this fantastic interview, e this woman, my goodness, Marina Dewey. She was just good lord. Uh, she's a journalist based in L. A. So editor at Buzzfeed, written for the L. A. Times, Rolling Stone, and CNN, and Guardian, and Billboard, and Vice, and all these great outlets. And I think it was just such a great conversation, as, as they often are, but specifically this one, because um, we talked a lot about art, and uh, it's kind of my nerdy topic. And she's a huge dork. I She's fantastic. She was just trained in, like, piano and guitar and singing and painting and drawing. It's just incredibly creative family in piano. And um, she's a nerd to the core. She likes Lord of the Rings and Stephen King and all that stuff. So I was in 100%. My coolest, The coolest thing about this, though, is she, had this something, she said something here that was that like finding your passion is such an intimidating de- uh, an intimidating demand. This is her words. Passion is such a strong word. I like the idea of curiosity. Everyone has curiosities. It's a simple and natural feeling to be curious. I think that's absolutely everything. I think she's figured out a lot of the secrets of the universe. I certainly learned a lot. And as always, I hope that you enjoy this as much as I did making it, because good Lord, what a woman. Uh, text you on the flip side, flippy flip. <laughs> How do we you know what that means? <laughs> hello, inspired minds, audience, dazzled throng You please say hello to the fantastic Miss Morena Dewey. Did I pronounce that? I didn't get that right. Did I?
1: Almost damn near. It's Dewey.
0: Dewey. Yeah. Uh, this is like the ninth time I've mis- mispronounced like the guests names. It's was just like really not a good intro. Not a right I, I think movie. it's
1: fine. I'm pretty used to it. I'd say it's pretty par for the course.
0: Okay, great. Thanks. All right. At least I, <laughs> at least I tried. Um, so thanks so much for being on this show. I'm really excited about this. But there's always one question that I like to ask at the top of the gate. Same question to every single interviewee. And that is simply, Marina, when you were young, what was the first thing that you can remember that truly inspired you, that lit you up? Was it a song or a book or a, a movie? Go. No. Um,
1: if we're talking young, young, like I would say probably one of my very first memories was also kind of one of my very first moments of inspiration. Um, My parents were classical musicians, and my mom specifically was a concert pianist. And I remember that piano was kind of this constant thrum in the background of our home. And or I mean, not even just piano, my dad taught all instruments. So it was like anything from like a a 9am oboe lesson on a Saturday, which isn't like, the best orchestral instrument to hear on a Saturday morning, but you know, I got used to it. Um, But I remember that it was always kind of like background to me. It never really connected to me until I saw my mom play Chopin's Fantasy Impromptu. I don't know if you're familiar with that piece, but it's one of the craziest piano pieces that I've ever seen. And also I think it was different because of the fact that it was my mom playing versus hearing, you know, kids and students like learning their basically their music theory ABCs. It was a much different experience than hearing my mom bust out this insane Chopin piece and I remember being completely enthralled with that when I was young and I think that was the first time that I really wanted to play the piano. Um, before that, playing the piano was just kind of, you know, standard in in the Dewey household. My sister played too. It was just kind of We didn't really ask, they never asked us if we wanted to take lessons, just lessons were part of our repertoire, our our daily life, so, and practicing, Um, but that was, I think, the first time that I really felt, like, moved by classical music and moved by actually wanting to play and learn that song. I never did learn that song, to be quite honest. I wasn't um, as good of a pianist as my mom, but I did play a lot of Chopin and Mozart and Bach, you know, the, those dudes, um and Schumann and Schubert all those guys but I do remember that kind of sparking something in me um at a young age and like kind of for the first time feeling music in a different way than and actually experiencing music than just kind of having it exist because that's kind of how I had felt about it before um and that's also an interesting thing about my parents because they were classical musicians I didn't really grow up with the standard you know pop music or rock and roll or, you know, jazz, maybe that, that, that was kind of the only like popular music that my parents really listened to. The records was like jazz and, and also Elvis, for some reason, they loved Elvis. Um, but all of that stuff I learned through my sister and honestly through the radio back when like, you know, the radio used to play things that I used to really listen to. And um, it was like this divergent musical world I was living in I had classical music was such a huge part of my upbringing but then you know as I got older classical music just isn't cool (laughs) to listen to anymore you know we're going to like in in the car on car rides and you know my parents are putting on classical music I'm just like rolling my eyes because I'd rather listen to like you know Alice in Chains or something (laughs) (laughs) and so um I would say as far as like that that's kind of do you know who Tony Andrews is he um actually oh, he do you know what function one speakers are?
0: <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. Could keep going.
1: <laughs> there's this um there's this speaker. It's it's like a sound system that is used at a lot of, you know, like live music. It's used at venues. I think the Grand Ole Aubrey uses function mm-hmm. ones and um a lot of music festivals use function ones, namely electronic music festivals, but also um all kinds of different genres but Tony Andrews who invented the Function One's has kind of become like somewhat of like an audio mystic and i i I've, I've never heard of a speaker like Function One having a cult following like it's very bizarre yeah. that the sound system has a cult following it even looks unique when you look at the actual it's it's like it's it's very distinct so, like you can see it from the very back of the crowd and be, like you know a huge stage and you can tell that those are Function One speakers just by the wow. shape
2: yeah.
1: but he Uh, talks about at like periods of people's lives they have what he calls an audio moment and it's basically what we were just discussing about where you you know hear either a piece of music or you know like see a piece of music live and you kind of have actual physiological response to it you know it was the song Hound Dog by Elvis and he heard it when he was a kid and like he had you know, full chills up the spine, like goosebumps, you know, and he felt completely entranced by it. And I think so that I I might like refer to audio moment at some point. Again, that's why I just kind of wanted to define that was if I, if I say it again, that was my audio moment was Chopin's fantasy impromptu.
0: I love that. So the follow-up question, which you basically answered was, how did that moment carry you through the rest of your current life?
1: Well, it definitely kept me playing piano in a way that, I wanted to for years um, and as opposed to it being just something that was there, you know, which is kind of how a lot of, I feel like a lot of kids are. I mean, I remember a lot of my mom's students being friends with them because they were a lot of them were my age and I grew up with them. And a lot of them kind of had the same attitude, like, you know, their parents made them play piano. Um, But something about that song really captivated me and, and made me see like how absolutely badass the piano is you know and yeah. even though it may not seem cool at first when you're like a kid and you just want to play you know like rock and roll songs or yeah. songs or something yeah. or like abdul or whatever um but yeah that song definitely kind of propelled me into kind of the the world of music and how how much it can have a, an effect and it also kind of became me and my mom's song you know every time sure she, i would kind of just like tell her to play it when I wanted to hear it, or if I wanted to impress my friends, I'd be like, mama play fantasy impromptu. And she'd be like, okay. And she would just bust it out. She was also very small. And what was all, I think one of the most incredible things about what made it so remarkable that she could pl- play that song was that she was like four eleven Filipino woman. Um, and she had these tiny, tiny hands. And that song is just this sweet song that just climbs back and forth across the entire keyboard. Like it, it, Basically it seems like it would be impossible for her to play when you look at her hands but the way that she played it she had her fingers stretched all the way so it <laughs> looked like she wasn't even moving her fingers yeah. like it looked like her hands were floating across the piano and I think that's part of why I loved watching her play it cuz it was like the music but it was also just looked like she was doing a magic trick to be honest
0: amazing yeah. so actually I just thought about this one this is the first time I'm going to use this one on uh, on anybody I just realized there's a second follow-up question and not to turn this too much into a therapy session, because we'll keep moving on. But if that didn't happen, let's say that that Chopin thing did not happen. Where would your life have gone? Do you think hard question, but I'm curious.
1: That's interesting. I mean, I think that I was hardwired to love music, found it some way, somehow Uh, it was just a matter of time, you know? And I think I was lucky enough to find it so early and right in my own home because of my parents being musicians. But, you know, whether it was, I mean, because, you know, like I said, I eventually, you know, found my own taste in music, which was very divergent from my parents, which is pretty standard fare, I'd say, for most kids and their parents. What was it? I You know, I was really into My sister is 10 years older than me, so she kind of was my, my music sage. And it was like, you know, right in the grunge era, um, in the heart of it. So a lot of, you know, Nirvana, Alice in Chains. Um, I also liked you know, I loved like Portishead, Bjork, a yeah. lot of the kind of, you know, moody experimental stuff. And then um, eventually when I got to high school, I mean, my high school music taste is probably not like my proudest. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it never is running.
1: <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, I, I was very much into the angsty emo stuff. You know, I love like Weezer and uh, Jimmy World. And,
0: oh,
1: you know, all the all those kind of um, can I, like
0: can, can I brag. Can I brag for a second?
1: Please brag away.
0: Uh, one of my favorite, one of my, some of my favorite human beings in the world are my chemical romance. I used to work with those guys nonstop. Oh. It was like it was kind of the, the main hub at the, at the label for a long time. So I, you know. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I, just, I had to brag. I just, I just love them so oh, I, much.
1: Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So then I, I'm glad that you are familiar with that world. It's, <laughs> it's that's funny because I mean, you know, and then that's also when I discovered seeing live music was up during that time. And I think live that, that was definitely a, a big catalyst for me was discovering the magic of seeing music live. Um, you know, my parents, we didn't go to concerts, you know, I like we went to symphonies at like the San Francisco um, opera house or we went to operas, ballets, ballet was a huge part of my life. So I think that's another reason why classical music kind of carried over is because I got really serious into ballet dancing. And so that kind of merged with my life as it was pretty well because of the classical music, but eventually when I got into, you know, like hip hop and emo and all that stuff, I started going to concerts all the time. And in Salinas, which is where I grew up by kind of Monterey um, Santa Cruz area, there's, I mean, you know, there's not a lot to do. It's kind of a farm town and concerts were basically what kept us going. And um, luckily my parents were pretty, that was one thing that my parents I really always respected about them um, is that they never censored my music which I thought was interesting growing <laughs> up, you know, like the parental advisory sticker on a CD meant nothing to them. They didn't care. Right. Um, but I think also because they came from a different culture, you know, my dad was from Europe, my dad was from Germany and my mom's from the Philippines where like censorship was of music and stuff. I don't know. It just, I just, I, I just feel like it just didn't even occur to them to censor my music. Um, so they were always open to anything that I listened to. They didn't necessarily like it. <laughs> You know, they allowed me to listen to it, which was always cool for my friends who, you know, whose parents wouldn't buy them the like NWA CDs or you know, they would come over to my house and we'd have listening parties and would be able to listen to it. I'd bootleg tapes for them.
0: <laughs> like a drug dealer.
1: I know, exactly.
0: <laughs> first albums, first CDs free.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was not even CDs, it was I was slanging tapes, you know, I was making making I was like bootlegging like tapes, cassette tapes <laughs> off of my and I would always get like blank cassette tapes in my stocking. Sure christmas every year so my mom would just, i was she was just really oh yeah do it without yeah, realizing it.
0: I, I will say this there's a real lost art to making mixtapes because god knows i made so many connect i i won't say late because that's such a horrible thing to say and I, horrible but I, I really got a lot of i macked out a lot by making mixtapes put it that way when i was younger
1: oh yeah it was so fun too i don't know there's something so special about it the time oh. that it took Totally. Took a lot of concentration.
2: Totally.
1: Also, I remember like a lot of my mixtapes were taping stuff off the radio because that was like the only way I could hear yeah. songs. And so there'd always be like the beginning part would be cut off, or it would have like the DJ's voice in the first part.
0: <laughs> That's exactly. I've actually I completely forgot about this. So that by the way, this whole experiment was in sense memory, clearly, right? Because there's event yeah. memory, which is what's in front of you. You're going to forget it in about 10 seconds. There's the event memory or sense memory, which lasts decades, right? Yep. Like I can think of my inflection point, my inspiration point, and I'm there all of a sudden. I can sense it. I can smell it because it is that It's that inflection point that carries us like an arrow to our careers or what our, love or our lives are. And that's why I love asking that question. But I want to move on because you specifically talked about live music. And I really want to go here because – um, I've been saying for a while that we were in a pandemic of disconnection and all this shit started a long time before COVID hit, right? Yeah. But COVID obviously, you know, disconnected us more and more and, you know, Facebook disconnecting us and politics and the whole deal. So t- for me, connection is the answer, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I really encourage communities and specifically with live music. So I always ask this question too, especially of music uh, nerds or journalists, which is what is, what would you say that was connecting experience you've had at a concert define that as you will
1: so i'm pretty big in the festival community i go um for years i was just covering music festivals specifically kind of the underground vibe that was kind of my beat was the more um the less polished festivals like namely electronic music kind of house music and bass music which are two kind of subgenres of like edm i would say but I think that that was kind of a big game changer for me. I mean, I remember my very first Coachella was in 2005, very inexperienced at festivals. I had gone to Warped Tour, was probably the closest thing to a festival I had gone to. You know, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of it, like, you know, punk rock and oh, yeah. emo, all that. And so that was kind of the closest thing I had gone to a festival. It's such a different experience, you know, especially because of the, the demographic was totally different. You're not camping or staying there. You know, you're not like, it's, it's in like an urban landscape generally versus a place that's kind of like, you know, at Coachella, it was just such a different vibe. You're surrounded by palm trees and mountainscapes and you're stepping on, dancing on grass and um, sort of pavement, you know? And the group, the people were totally different as well. Like, you know, it wasn't a bunch of, you know, like angsty teens. It was like pretty across the board. Like you definitely saw every I mean it's changed a lot now but in 2005 I feel like it was a lot different there was you you saw a lot more of every walk of life there and you know it was pre social media so it wasn't really about the whole you know instagram friendly mm. vibe that I feel like it's kind of morphed into now yeah. but I just remember being completely gobsmacked by that whole experience and the idea of there being just these giant art installations. Like that was something that I'd never experienced combined with music. It was just kind of sensory overload. like Um, It's just this, uh, but I remember as I kind of got deeper into that world, I I was hooked after that, you know, and I started going more and more um, and trying to go to as many festivals as I possibly can. And then when I started writing them, that kind of made it writing about them that, made it possible. And I feel like that there's a festival called lightning in a bottle and it's by the do lab and, um, the do lab kind of had uh, They're their own production company, but they kind of got their name out there via Coachella. They have a stage there and they kind of were known for featuring more underground artists, you know, with Coachella, the lineups are always just such huge stars. Yeah. Um, And then they would have these kind of undergrounds like stars of the underground who are stars to us, you know, but not maybe the general public. And so that stage kind of grew and grew and grew. And then soon, you know, eventually they opened their own festival to lightning in a bottle, which is basically more of that vibe of just it's, it's that little stage that they have it. Well, it's not little anymore, but it was during the time when I was going there at first to Coachella. And then they just grew it into a festival size essentially. And I remember the very first time I went there, that was, the first time I'd gone to a festival that wasn't like a mainstream kind of like Coachella like yeah. nation, golden voice kind of vibe. It was independent, like put on by these people who like music, you know, they're not part of this huge corporation. And I think the thing that blew my mind the most was when I looked around, there was not one piece of trash on uh. the ground, not one cigarette, butt, not one gum wrapper, bottle cap, like bottle cap, like nothing. And that to me, like absolutely blew my mind and said, spoke, you know a lot about the community that was attending this thing because right. the fact that everyone was able to just not throw their trash on the ground, yeah. <laughs> or like even pick trash up. You know, because it's not always on purpose. Sometimes something falls out of your pocket, out of your bag when you're in dynamics, and it was the idea of not just not throwing trash on the ground, but also picking it up when you see it, throwing stuff exactly. in the trash again.
0: Huh. And I remember respect. just respect. I'm here. I know. About
1: It made me sad that that was such a mind-blowing concept because I was like, because I remember being at Coachella one time in the campgrounds and like there, we looked up and there was a trash tornado that was happening in front of our eyes. Like literally just, there was even like someone's like rain fly from their tent was up in there. Like it was a full-on trash tornado. And then when the wind stopped, it just started raining garbage on us. And I was like, this is, this stops. like this is fucked, you know? <laughs> and so that was kind of my experience with festivals. And also like, I feel like because of that experience, like that was just kind of the the norm, you know, I'm like, well, when you get, you know, like tens of thousands of people together, this is inevitable. Like that's, that's sure. just how it is, you know? But then when I went to lightning, they proved that wrong. Like they totally proved that norm wrong and showed me that that doesn't have to be that way. And so I really fell like right into that, um, that community. And it's, I've been in it ever since. And that was like over 10 Absolutely. years ago. Absolutely.
0: Okay. Uh, let me tell you mine really quick. I just love telling this story. So I'm not the biggest Bruce Springsteen fan or wasn't for a long time. Just kind of more of a punk kid when I was younger. Yeah. I was kind of like ah, Bruce Springsteen, you know, born in the USA. I didn't get any of it, but yeah, yeah. I saw him play live about five years, six years ago. And it was, you know, it was like three hours. The guy's like not young and he's just <laughs> running around, but they played, it was so fucking brilliant. At the end of the show, they played Born to Run, right? Which is, you know, the song, obviously. And But the entire thing is incredible. They turned the lights on the house, the whole song, right? Bright lights, like the ones you walked in when you started sitting down. And it leveled the playing field, if, I, if that makes any sense. Because it was suddenly like Bruce is one of us. And the coolest thing about it, because you could look, look all around you, you could see everybody in, this, in the place singing along to Born to Run, right? So it was, yeah. that unific- it was like this unifying moment of, and not to sound too old or pretentious, but it was a unifying moment of like rock and roll and art and passion. It was amazing. It was absolutely incredible. Just a tiny little flick of the switch. That's all it was.
1: I love those little moments that you that you acknowledge that sometimes they come at you unexpectedly like that, though. And I like also that you don't even consider yourself a big Springsteen fan or a fan mm-hmm. at all, and that that was still such a... Pivotal moment for you? No,
0: it's, it's it's just little moments of grace. It's just little moments of connection that we can use in the society a little more. Yeah. But that being said, though, you're you're a very prolific writer, obviously, uh, Associated Editor of BuzzFeed and LA Times, are written for Rolling Stone, and CNN, and Guardian, and Billboard, and Vi- I Can go on forever. <laughs> Here's the question for you. I love asking this question too with a lot of writers. Do you find the story, or does the fire story find you?
1: Um. I'd say it's a little bit of both. Sometimes the story just comes at me and I'm like, oh, that would make a good story idea. And then that's the pitch. And other times I have, like, for example, sometimes I'll have this idea that is just kind of half-baked and I I can't quite figure out how to make it pitch-worthy or, like, strong enough that any uh, publication would actually be willing to let me write it (laughs)
2: yeah
1: and um so I think in those cases I find the story um so I actually just finished the story for Rolling Stone that I filed on this past Monday um that I've been working on for four months actually wow but before that I've been kind of it's been bubbling in my brain for years like I don't even know three years at least um and it was a story about hospitality writers
0: oh really
1: Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, just saying that, that's a, that's a lot, you know, like you think, okay, well, what about hospitality writers? So that was basically the idea was it started with, I want to write a story about hospitality writers because, you know, like working in the industry, meeting people who work in the industry, you just hear stories and legends and, you know, the the Van Halen M&Ms and, you know, the Beyonce titanium straws and all these, you keep hearing them, but I just couldn't find, it took me a long time to really find that, that um that meaty bit that was going to make it worth pitching because otherwise i I was gonna say hey i want to write a story about writers like that's just not strong enough especially when there's already tons of content out there that's just like top 10 craziest writers like here's 20 insane writers and there's but i i did find that there was not really anything that was a full kind of um you know comprehensive reported out piece about the writer and so i was reading um a couple months ago i guess it was like six months ago uh that Laurel Canyon book, I know there's a few, I can't remember which one it was that I read, but I was reading it and there's a, where one of the um, people being interviewed says, we invented the writer. And I was like, what? And I was listening to the audiobook, and I like paused it and rewound it probably like four times to make sure that I, I heard that right. And then, um, actually went home and just bought the book so that I could look it up and like, make sure that I could actually, was actually like hearing this correctly and it turns out that this guy, John Hartman, actually, um, did, well, I, I think it's better to say he had adapted. I think in the book he said he invented it, but it, he he redefined the writer, essentially. Um, and so that moment was the moment that I realized I had I had my story. So with him, he kind of anchored it a little bit, so it wasn't just this kind of, you know, free-floating, random writer story that there's already been, like, a bunch of coverage on. It was like, had like this anchor to history and to its origins, essentially, okay. and so that took me months to to get find people that you know it was hard to find people that a were willing to actually like divulge some of the writers that they've worked with because i'm sure that a lot of the time they've had to sign n d a s yeah. or yeah. you know but then I ended up finding some some really good juicy bits that i won't spoil here you'll have to read the article <laughs> but <laughs> I got got some good stuff in there, but yeah, that was definitely one of those scenarios, you know, like, um, sometimes people will just tell, give like the, you know, I'll, I'll get like a a really good story idea from someone that will just be like, Hey, you know, would you be interested in writing? Like, you know, from PR people sometimes, or even from, um, just friends and like people like out on the, out on the field, you know, like I'll just hear someone say like, you know, this would be a good idea for a story. And I'm like, Oh yeah. And so that, those are the ones that find me, but (laughs) I'd say it's about half and half. That writer one was definitely me shoehorning the that story into Rolling Stone somehow. You know. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, honestly, this is I love asking this question because it kind of makes me realize that a lot of story people are water witches, or basically they have water witches for stories, right? Or they're uh, they're spelunking for stories, or whatever metaphor you want to use. Um, because, you know, I was thinking, I was saying this a lot too. There's two things and correct me if I'm wrong, by the way, because this is open for debate. There's two things you got to do to be a great writer. You have to a tell the story in whatever that means, right? Film, TV, music doesn't matter, but the hardest part is to find it. I've always thought that because like you mentioned, things just zing by us all the time. Like the Bruce Springsteen thing. It was amazing, but I was able to codify it, look at it. Get a beginning, a middle, and end of that particular story that I told you, and I can extract a meaning out of it pretty damn quick about it being connected, right? Yeah. So my point is that I've read your writing, and it does seem like you do very much the similar thing. We write about general, we're well, not general. You write about very specific things, but you also extrapolate a lot of major themes out of them. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I would say so. That's kind of something I learned on my journalism journey because actually, you know, I, I didn't go to school for journalism. Um, I actually went to school for film. And journalism was just something that kind of happened, which is bizarre, because I feel like that doesn't just happen most of the time to people <laughs> nope. uh, so you know, when I first started writing, I was very amateur, you know like I read some of my earlier stuff and it makes me cringe a little bit, but uh I've come a long way yeah. that's all part of the process, but that was definitely something that I learned on the on the on the journey was was kind of like these niche stories or spe- like something more specific you know like it, sure. I remember when I especially with music festival coverage like early on it was just co- festival coverage you know like I'm just covering this event and like what does that mean like am I talking about you, you know like the art the music the people do I have to talk about all of it because that's a lot to yeah. just talk about a festival you know there's so much that goes down am I talking about my personal experience am I talking about you know all the funny weird shit that I got into during the festival probably not probably not safe for publication but <laughs> regardless um you know and then I started realizing that the, the real stories are the ones that are more specific and that was something that I learned when I started writing for l a Weekly was that you know if I wanted to cover a festival or an event it had to be something in particular like uh there's these events called hard hard fest they're like these oh, uh, yeah. rave, uh-huh. rave type deals huh. and for that I did like a very specific story on a DJ who performed eight months pregnant there.
2: Wow.
1: Yeah. Wow. And she was jumping around on the table. Her name's Anna Lunau. It was, it was a, it was a really fun story to write. And then it was interesting too, because she was jumping around on stage, like eight months pregnant, like about to pop any day. <laughs> and then, you know, I go back to her uh, trailer with her to interview her. And like, you know, that was like the first that she actually looked like a pregnant woman. Cause she was like, laying down and I could tell she was tired and she put her feet up and she had a fan going and she was, you know, like, it was just, it was interesting to see that that shift happened so quickly yeah. and that she was even did, able to do it in the first place that she was able to put on that kind of a show. So I don't know. It was like those kind of a scenario where like, I, I found that like, you know, especially with festival writing, having something that's like specific coverage where the festival is essentially just the backdrop right. um, was kind of become more, my style and I think that's just the general style as well and it just kind of makes for a better story I think versus
0: just and speaking of okay you want to hear the greatest segue in the world I'm very proud of myself for this upcoming one you're ready oh. this, this is like I should get a segue award like there should be a segue uh, contest ready here we go so speaking of stories tell me about meat bingo <laughs> oh,
1: god.
0: I want to hear about this. Tell, um, tell the audience absolutely everything that <laughs> you know about Ming Pingo.
1: Well, so what's funny is not so much the article itself as the drama that happens afterwards. So um <laughs> this woman, I had okay, where are I even begin? This is such a bizarre story. Um a friend of mine who's kind of like this nomad. He's from Israel. He uh, we meet at festivals pretty much around the world and around the country, and then I, we never see him again until it's like another festival, generally, or Burning Man or something like that. Yeah, and so. Uh, he met met this woman, I think it was in Nicaragua or Guatemala or some, somewhere in Central America and was like, hey, I met this woman. She's written a book and I just feel like you guys would get along. So you guys should connect. So I connected with her and we kind of, you know, would just chat on on Facebook Messenger here and there. And then um, she hit me up and was like, hey, I saw that you're, you know, a journalist. Would you, I have this bar and um, would you be interested in, in writing about it? It's this very historic bar in Astoria, Oregon and she asked me if I wanted to come cover it and I was like sure that sounds cool um she was super gracious like really generous let us she had an Airbnb that she let us stay in and um you know we went and supported the bar dropped a lot of money at the bar drinking with the with the patrons and ended up making friends with some people that were there and uh you know it turned into a a like party i don't even know what happened we just you know got ways it was at a bar so and then the the meat bingo happened which was you know it was meat bingo i know i'm like glossing Daddy. for the part that you wanted to hear about
0: <laughs> time out yeah exactly don't, don't bury that lead do not bury that lead <laughs>
1: Um, well, so it was essentially just exactly what it seems like. It was, you know, it started, I guess it started a long time ago. Um, and it kind of just brought people in and I think it was just like a fun novelty thing. It was just, instead of winning prizes, like money or something like that, like people won bacon. Like, Oh,
0: see, I thought you were playing with like raw meat.
1: It was was the prize. And then the prize kept getting upped. And then I think there was like some nice steaks or whatever people wanted to donate. But it was more like the vibe and the cult following that it had that was kind of the the meat, <laughs> if you will, of the yeah,
0: story. Right, good one. Good one. And <laughs> so,
1: yeah, that was I mean, it was it's funny that you ask about that story because I uh, I told my boyfriend, he's like, I was like, he wants to hear about meat bingo. And he's like, Oh shit. <laughs> and we we're him the whole story. And I'm like, I guess so, yeah. You
0: absolutely are. Oh, I could do the entire show on fucking meat bingo, honestly. <laughs>
1: So it turned into, so we ended up meeting some people that were like lived the locals and like partying with them. And like, we were up late with them and had a really good time, like met a lot of really amazing people. And I started to hear them start talking about the woman who um had, you know, hosted me and invited me to, to, to this, to write this story and everything, the owner of the bar. And I started hearing all this, this kind of gossip about her and I was like, you know, I I didn't really want to become a part of that. I just like, I was like, I'm interviewing her tomorrow. Like, I, I'd like to just make my opinion for myself, you know. And she was really generous to me. So it was really, I, I felt like, I don't know, I, I didn't believe any of it. I was like, I, I think that this is just some petty shit. I don't want to get in the middle of it. So I just ignored what everybody said. And then I had the interview with her the next day, extremely hungover. And. Um, she was cool. We walked around the town. She kind of gave me, it was like a historical tour, I guess, like a historical walking tour of the town, which was nice. Um, but then she went into the drama as well. And so this was all on the record, obviously. And, you know, she went into it and was telling me all about it and how the townspeople were just like, just really mean, you know, like mean spirited. Like they made like a bumper sticker about her, a a mean bumper sticker that people were passing around. Like it was just. God. I don't know. It, it, it just sucked, you know. Like to hear that kind of story, and after, yeah. and she had been so nice to me, and then I was like, "I'm sorry to hear that." And then, you know, I go home, write the article, um, and essentially, I, I know. I'm assuming you read it.
2: Yeah, actually. Yeah. So okay, you're <laughs> in.
1: Never know sometimes. Uh, um, and so yeah, you know, it talks about how you know, like the bumper stickers, and how she was, you know, people kind of treated her badly, and and then but at the, at the end of the day, she just did her thing. And I don't know, I, I meant it as like a, as a way to show her kind of like that. She in the face of of hardship and, and vitriol that she still did the damn thing and was able to get the bar back and running, you know? So that was kind of the story that I saw when I wrote it or was attending at least, but apparently that's not how it was interpreted by her. So it was strange because then when I sent her the post, she, she posts about it like she posted on Facebook and it's like, I'm so proud or, you know, says something about being I'm proud of us for putting this article together. And I was like, oh, great. I'm glad you like it. I don't know what changed, but she starts posting these terrible things about me. Saying that I'm horrible and like I'm a piece of shit Ooh. and that leave it to vice to to like turn a an innocent article about bingo and Astoria into a salacious piece of gossip and like all these things. Like I had no idea what was going on. And she basically started sending me these horrible emails. It just like, I, it was so bizarre and I, I'm not going to lie. Like that was that, that like really got to me. I've, I've been writing, you know, festival coverage and stuff like that. So I never really got a lot of trolls or people, people. I, I was, I was still on my, that really helped thicken up my skin. So I'm grateful for that. I'll, I'll, I'll be eternally thankful for her, for teaching me to handle my first troll essentially, which is something that definitely it needs to be learned when you're, when you're doing any kind of creative. And so, oh. yeah. And so it just, I, I like months, I was like harping on this for months. Like I, I was so upset because I just had never anybody, I had never had anybody so, you know, like viciously sure despise something that i wrote and it was just kind of especially when the intention was not that like i think if i was it would have been different if i was like trying to take the woman down or something but i feel like the fact that i was trying to and that i stuck up for her and like when people were talking shit about her and that i was trying really hard to make it seem like you know she was the victor and all that even though they were bullying her in the article and then it turns out that she was the bully after all
0: Yeah, well, you know, no good deed goes unpunished.
1: Yeah, so I mean, that's the, anyways, I mean, I guess that's, it's not that great of a story, but that's the meat bingo story. No, it actually is a great story. story?
0: It it actually is a great story. And I will say this about this uh, real quickly. I like the story because you understand the lessons that people can be lessons, right? You said, you absolutely said it yourself, that she was a lesson in X or a lesson in Y. People are like that. So I love that part of the story also, too, as well. But I absolutely am going to have a band called Meat Bingo at some point. In oh the
1: hell yeah!
0: Just like some indie rock band from Silver Lake, mid nineties Meat Bingo. It's happening.
1: So great, I'll come to your shows, all of them. <laughs> <I'll> Meat <laughs> Bingo, group, for sure.
0: How about it's like industrial, like like uh, like KMFDM, like back in those days. <laughs> Meat Bingo,
1: um, German industrial techno.
0: Exactly, like Kraftwerk, but you know, even worse.
1: Yeah, Kraftwerk um, meets Rammstein.
0: Totally. I gotta love Rammstein. Okay. So we're going to wrap this up. I'll wrap it up, but I got one more thing. I really, 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 really want to ask you about. I love this quote of yours. Tell me more about this following. Finding your passion is such an intimidating demand. Passion is such a strong word. I like the idea of curiosity. Everyone has curiosities and it's such a simple and natural feeling to be curious. You're right. Tell me more.
1: So it's funny. Was that from the other podcast that I was on that you That's saw? Right. Okay. <laughs> it's funny because before I say that, um, I'm actually kind of referencing Elizabeth Gilbert, who, uh, said it first. And so it, it's funny when they quoted me, cause I was like, ah, yeah, I said that on the show, yeah. but technically I was <laughs> Elizabeth Gilbert, but that really resonates in her book, big magic. Um, which is basically about creativity in all its forms, but definitely resonates more so with writers because she's obviously a writer so it's easier to for a writer to kind of connect that way sure but I I definitely feel like that's a huge thing because I see it happen all the time and I I've been through so many different um phases of life professionally you know like I mentioned before like There was a point where I wanted to be a ballet dancer and that was like all I could think about, all I could do. And it was all because I was curious about it. You know, I'm like it was part of my life and we grew up going to the ballet and then I wanted to try it because I had some friends try it. And then that led me on a whole journey. And then um, I watched Almost Famous and that made me want to be a music journalist. Oh, wow. I saw that in theaters and that was like a huge game changer for me as well. I love, um, that,
0: movie. I love that movie so much that captured that whole pie eyed excitement of being a writer. The, uh, go ahead. Yeah,
1: me too. And it's funny because I, I got my first Rolling Stone article last year and I was like looking back at when I was 14, watching that movie. Right. I was like when I was 14, I was like picturing myself with that huge microphone that he's, you know, that big tape recorder microphone like cruising right. around backstage that's talking funny. to people with this mic you know and then like sitting at home on the typewriter for hours and hours like with editors like blowing up your phone be like where's my article where's my article? <laughs> you know? and so like it's just so funny because as I was actually writing my first Rolling Stone story I was like looking back at my 14 year old self and I was like wow I wonder my 14 year old self would have thought about the reality of this like I'm like sitting in front of my laptop at a desk in my bedroom and you know, like I'm emailing it to this editor instead of you know, and it's it's it was just such a different experience, and it was you know online versus like holding the magazine, like I always pictured myself like buying the <laughs> article at the newsstand, you know, and, like telling the the newsstand proprietor like, "Hey, look, it's me, that's my name, that's my byline, you know. Exactly.
0: Like, and the like, guy, the guy Holly was like, "Yeah, you and whatever, get out of here."
1: <laughs> yeah, he's like, "You and plenty other people, get out of here." So I was just like. I was like, you know, it was just so funny, but I mean, so there was like, that was another instance of like kind of following my curiosity was, you know, I wanted to be a music journalist. And then I was writing was like something that came very like natural. My dad was a a writer. And so that was just always something that he instilled in me. Um, And then and then that curiosity switched again when I started getting really into films, partially because of Almost Famous as well. That was kind of like a, a double whammy for me, I guess, because I, really, I became a cinephile. Um, and then I went to college, and my, my, I was initially a journalism major at UC Irvine. And then when I took my first few classes, I was like, this is fucking boring. <laughs> I was like, this sucks, dude. It is not, like, Almost Famous at all. No. And I'm like 18, so it's like, what? What do you know when you're 18? Nothing. So I was like, I was like, this this blows. I'm switching majors. I just want to watch movies. So that was another curiosity I followed. I just went and like switched to film major, which was actually way more fun because I spent all my days watching movies and then writing about them. So it was the best of both worlds in a sense because I was still writing. You know, I was still able to like flex that muscle. But yeah, absolutely. It was on a topic that I cared about, and so then I ended up a journalist anyway. I don't know what to tell you. Like it just, and I think it was just because of that was a whole nother thing. Like I just keep, I just go from like curiosity to curiosity. And I feel like finally this one just stuck. And, you know, and I, I don't think I would have gotten here had I not tried all those different avenues too. you know, like, um, and then, and also because I tried a lot of other things, I feel like I don't have any regrets, you know, like the ballet thing. I'll never regret. I, I, when I decided that I wasn't gonna be a ballet dancer like that was a solid decision that i was happy with and that's something that i'll never i never like look back and think oh what if i was a prima ballerina with the american ballet theater like i never have those thoughts sure. and i think that a lot of it is because i just indulged all my different my different wants and curiosities and eventually it just led me to where i am now
0: well that you have it you know a curiosity reason i pulled that quote actually is because curiosity is um well, at first, I, there's a quote that Fauci had that it's been my North Star for a while now, which is to be the eternal student. I just like that concept. And, but the thing about But uh, the thing about therapy, which is I've I realized, is that capacity is really the key to being a therapist. It's the same thing, right? Tell me more about that. Interesting. I'd like to know what's behind that. Like Whatever that necessarily is, you, you need to be inherently curious in your clients, obviously, <laughs> but a lot of people don't really have that. It is about empathy. It is about connecting, but it's also about that curiosity. So that stood out for me. So we're going to zip this thing up a little bit to make aware of, uh, make, make good of your time. But um, I thought about something. And you're going to say, absolutely not. You're going to say, I cannot do this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I would like your favorite movie ever and make a quick one line about why you liked it. And I'll do the same. we got to pick one.
1: Yeah. Uh, Clockwork Orange, I guess. Stanley Kubrick. Um, that's just been my... And when I went to film school, I remember one of my professors said, you need to always have a favorite movie right. ready to go at the tip of your tongue right. at any given time. You know, she's like, if you want to be in the film biz and someone asks you what your favorite movie is, you better fucking have one and you That's better right. not give that bullshit answer. Oh, but there's so many. How can I decide? She's like, you better have an answer. Exactly. And so, you know, I have a lot of favorite movies to be, to be honest. Like, right. I'd say, you know, at least a top 10. But that's been my, it's funny that's that you're, you're finally the first one time, you're the first person I actually got to use that.
0: Oh, well, I'm thrilled to best yeah. because I absolutely believe that, by the way. I hate it when people were like, oh, oh, like, come on, like, it's not yeah, like, Just By the way, first of all, no one's going to, like, find you if you're wrong.
1: So. <laughs> and there's no wrong answer. It's your exactly.
0: favorite. Movie. Exactly. But I'll give you mine. Uh, and I had the same one. I pulled this out like a gun holster network. Oh, nice! That's either that, honestly, or it's that, it's, it's that really, or there will be blood. That's oh,
1: that's a good one.
0: Kind of, or the jerk by Steve Martin. So
1: oh yeah, that's a classic too. I could. I'm gonna I keep me say, yeah, the, the Godfather is one of mine as well. I sure. mean, I kind of love those ones. I love Train Spotting as well. Oh,
0: good call. Yeah.
1: Yeah, call. and um,
0: all right, we're done.
1: That's and the Lord of the Rings movies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we're fine with that. Okay, I got one last question for you, and then we're gonna do a little wrap up here. Here's the fun one. This is a, So as uh, I bookend the entire show, the first uh, question was the what inspires you. The last question is as a creative and or, and or as a writer, Marina, when do you know you're done?
1: Um, I think I'm still constantly asking myself that question every time I write, to be quite honest. You know, like I, it, I usually am done when the deadline hits, but That's... sometimes, for example, with this last one that I did where I didn't have a deadline, which really blew my mind, um that was a question that I was constantly asking. And I think it's just when I completely just run out of steam. <laughs>
2: oh, yeah.
1: I'll just be writing so much and and it gets to a point where I just force myself to be done and just slap the laptop shut and I'm like, okay, I'm done. Because yeah. otherwise I feel like there's just this endless, you know, editing and editing and editing and changing one word or swapping a comma and adding a letter here and a the there and like, you know, so um I think that's a question that I'm still try- like. I would like to hear the answer myself, to be quite honest, oh.
0: uh,
1: <laughs> because oh. I honestly never feel done. You know, um, I don't really feel done until it's printed and, and in the.
0: I will share with you two quick answers that I really also like, because there is no wrong answer to this. Yeah, one was uh, just recently I interviewed um, uh, Diana Osana, who uh, won the Academy Award for *Brokeback Mountain* for the screenwriting nice. and uh, the Oscar, and I loved her answer. She said, "It's when the characters tell me they're done."
1: Oh, that's good. Yeah, I was that's like
0: good. boom. But the best one, honestly, was Neil Young. When I asked him that and he goes, When I'm done. <laughs> Makes sense, Mr. Young. So we're gonna wrap this little show up. Here's how I like to do it. Involves a little acting involved here. I'm gonna pretend to say goodbye. You're gonna pretend to say goodbye. I'm gonna fake hang up and then we'll do a quick chat afterwards and say goodbye officially. Deal? Sure. Here we go. After the races, Marina, what an absolutely fantastic time I've had. I'm not I'm not shocked about this at all. I could tell in the email exchange that you were a good, you're good peeps. Um, but I really, I, I enjoyed it. I also, by the way, a little summary here. I honestly thought it was pronounced Chopin. What is it? Is it Chopin? You...
1: Chopin or Chopin. Chopin. I, I, I think either is.
0: Accepted. Is it kind of like Van Gogh and Van Gogh? That kind of thing? I think so. All right. Well, whatever. Fuck it. I Your always turn. Chopin. Your turn.
1: Well, it was a pleasure meeting you. V- albeit virtually, I guess And it was cool learning about your background too A little bit And um, thanks for having me on the show It's rare that I get to be the interviewed person The interviewee versus the interviewer So that's nice And uh, maybe we could do it again one day Who knows I would
0: I would love nothing more Scale of 1 to 10 Rate me how good I am at this, please Make me, make me feel better about myself oh, But if it's low
1: it We're taking it to 11
0: We're taking it to 11, ladies and gentlemen Out of 100 But nevertheless, I'm ecstatic about oh, Out of 100? <laughs> Kidding.
1: 111.
0: <laughs> That's
1: great. I love it. All right. 11 out of 100. You're like, oh, gee, thanks.
0: <laughs> How generous of you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh we're going to go in one, two, click.